in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbarnes. How are you doing, sir? Great. Ready to start. I am excited today, Dustin. We are bringing back a third timer here uh he's made some great episodes with us before mr tyler harlow now from the denver colorado location previously from california increased your elevation does that make your movie credibility go up too Uh, i wish if anything it's kind of limited me from from what i've been able to see (laughs) stuff stuff comes out here a a little bit after i would normally have watched them in la so i just have to be patient now yeah so Remind everybody here, if, for those who don't remember, you help write for After the Credits blog. Tell people about that. It's my movie review website. It's uh, something that I kind of have been trying to do ever since I was in college. But uh, once I moved out to L.A. and uh, started working at a movie theater and had just a lot of access to movies and uh everything i just decided hey i need to put my thoughts down and uh people always ask me what i think about movies anyway yeah i just figured i'd 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 beat them to the punch and be like yeah there's a review coming soon all right and you know of all the people we have on you're probably the only person who has seen more movies than brian fry so i do enjoy catching up on movies with brian and books he's he's really good at recommending books for me to read but this is a book-free episode, isn't it, Dustin? <laughs> it is. There'll be there'll be no there'll be no reading and no learning here. Not an episode of Retro Book Roundtable, which Fry keeps uh, keeps suggesting. Not a bad idea, but not my idea. Let's uh, let's break the ice here. What is a movie that you were excited for, Tyler? But it was not what you thought it would be. I'd say recently uh, a movie of that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Probably was my more recent movie that I saw, which was Uncharted. I didn't play the games, but I had it kind of built up in my brain what I thought I was getting, and what I got was a disappointment, I would say. So he wanted Uncharted, and they gave him Charted instead, which was the opposite of what he wanted. So <laughs> the, the whole movie was nothing but charts. Which was crazy for, for a two-hour-long movie. It was just like, how many charts could they... Oh, yeah, there's another one. Wow. Where'd they get that? <laughs> They're really getting a lot of use of this pie. Oh, great. <laughs> Bars? <laughs> Dustin, how about you? What's a, movie, what's a movie that you saw that excited you? But, you know, you were disappointed by it. From 2017, The Dark Tower with Idris Elba and McConaughey. I was really excited about it. I'm not the biggest Stephen King fan, but I am a Stephen King fan. And so should I have been excited about this? Or should the fandom have been excited about this? Probably no. But when you're given like this, this is such a cool property. And it's so impactful to the readers of it. 
We just said this was a no book episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, no, you indulge, it, it, indulge. It was, it was, it was awful. Uh, I really didn't care for it. And uh, it's, it did make money, right? It had a pretty big budget and it made an extra 50 million. So it made money, but it just, uh, it really didn't do it for me. And I don't know any Stephen King fans that liked it. I'm, I'm a casual Stephen King fan, like more so from the movie side of things. And I was also disappointed. So that's a very good pick. I, uh, I think it's ripe for a remake, um, you know? Well, it took him so long to get it there, and now, now we're already saying remake it, remake it. I think we're in the, we're in the world where there's so many uh, like premium TV space that, like, that could be an incredible miniseries mm. or series on our primetime channels, but um, that would make it even more unlikely that I ever watch it. I just, <laughs> the only thing I watch are movies 10 years or older. So it was even it was even rare that I even got a chance to watch this uh, 2017 movie. But yeah, it was it was poor. But um, you know, it's it didn't make me like this the like the book series any less. It was just kind of rough. Now this one is going to be probably the most polarizing one of the ones that we got here. But mine's going to be Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I I I had it built up. A lot of people loved it. Just talked about how great it was. And uh, it I think had those friends known me better, this is not my kind of movie. So. It's uh, it's lengthy and it's funny. It's been I've fallen asleep at the beginning part multiple times. So when I finally did get all the way through it, I was like, yeah, I don't agree with everybody who loves this movie. I just think you're right that people will overhype that movie. And if it didn't matter to you before and it ends up not mattering to you after, your friends are going to be like, oh, you just don't get it or whatever. I think um, the big Lebowski falls in that same category of like, oh, you got to see it. And then if you're not like a huge fan of it, like that's okay. Like there are certain movies that it's like it's the cult hype that not everybody gets. That's what exactly you've nailed it. Like this was pitched to me as like this is gonna be one of your top one hundred greatest movies list. And I'm like, it is very not. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's on the top one hundred thousand movies list that I've seen. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. Today we are going to be doing what movie, Dustin? 1987's Fatal Attraction. That's right. Fatal Attraction stars Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. And it has a budget of $14 million, and it grosses so much more than that. It's a very successful movie. It grosses $125.9 million domestically, placing it at number two on the box office, which, you know, I feel like the 80s are a very interesting time. There's types of movies that you just don't see today that can top like are you gonna have a thriller topping the box office or you know being number two on the year like that it's just a really interesting uh note in like how the box office has shifted the number one movie that year perhaps even more amazingly was three men and a baby and uh it comes ahead of beverly hills cop 2 so i mean very different kinds of movies yeah you're you're so right with comedies like honey i shrunk the kids was like up there like two years later like it's it's nuts how these 80s comedies are like blasting the box office i love it it makes me happy and i hope comedy can work its way back in there again in the future but imdb gives fatal attraction a 6.9 and the critics of rotten tomatoes give it a 76 percent and an audience score of 72 percent that's that's surprisingly low because this this gets six academy award nominations it actually doesn't get any of them they uh they come they come away with empty-handed they do get four golden glow nominations they do win one bafta for best editing nominated for two more there it's a people's choice award winner perhaps most impressively it's the afi 
top 100 thrills list, number 28 movie. So it's pretty thrilling. Uh, also, AFI, perhaps even more impressive here, is they name Alex Forrest, the character in this movie, as the number seven villain of all time, of all movies. So the, the critics and perhaps the audience score ratings don't justify that. Tyler, had you seen this one before? And I had. I, I had seen it in college, and it had taken me a while to, to see it because my mom remembered going on like a, a double date with another uh, married couple. They didn't understand what the movie was, so they got to a certain point of this movie where they ended up walking out. E- even though that, that event happens kind of quite late in this movie, I expected that when I saw it, I originally expected it to happen a lot earlier for them to walk out on. But uh, yeah, for a while, this was this movie's terrible. We walked out on it. This is not something that anybody should watch. And so I got to college and I, I kind of got a little, uh, little I'm going to watch this movie that my parents told me I have no business watching. You rebel. And I'll show you. I know. It's college. What can I say? Change me. I know. I mean, <laughs> so, some people really go off the deep end and Tyler did. He watched an R-rated movie. Let's go nuts and get Glenn Close on that screen. <laughs> that is the kind of rebellious personalities we bring on this show (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's bad boy month i i definitely have a college viewing of the movie and then re-watching it now i think they made it in 1987 with a specific purpose and i think that now that context has shifted and is a very different conversation than what they uh, potentially had originally intended with the movie. That's another reason it's interesting that it came out when it did. That's another good point. So uh, is it holding up well over time for you? It does, but for very different reasons. Okay. Very different reasons. Yeah. Do you feel like the awards were nominated, like the, the nominations? I'd forgotten that this had been nominated for so many things like picture, director, especially in like a year for picture where you only get five. Whereas now you can have, I think you have up to 10. Best director, best actress, Glenn Close, best supporting actress, screenplay. I mean, these are the big ones. Again, for the type of movie it was, it was like, oh yeah, this movie, like, I I think that we could have the most interesting conversation because I don't think you really kind of get nominations like this now. Dustin, how about you? Had you seen Fatal Attraction before? No, I, I am the one who has seen the fewest movies of uh, all of our hosts, and uh, I had never seen it, which is once again why I'm so grateful to have this position to get be able to see new stuff, and uh, was very excited to be a blank slate going into it. Aside from who was in it, didn't really know what it was about. How did it experience for you as a first time viewer? It was delightful. It was splendidly done, and while there are certain things about it in general, maybe wouldn't be considered enjoyable. It is the sort of roller coaster thrill ride. You are made to feel certain ways, and sometimes that's through what they show you, and sometimes that's through how the actors act. Uh, it was, I was mesmerized. Yeah, I'm like you, Dustin. This is not one I'd seen before. It certainly, um, growing up, wouldn't have been able, wouldn't have been allowed to watch this at the time. Do it. I did know what it was about, think that takes a little bit away from it i've always wondered does knowing too much about a movie hurt it but even knowing where this movie was going to take you it was very intense because of the situations that they've built up 
you do feel this um, uncomfortable quality. I got to credit them, particularly the director. They are going to spoil this movie and get into all the fun stuff about this. So this is a movie that uh, might be more uh, adversely uh, affected if you haven't seen it. So we encourage you to watch it. We will be back after these messages where we will spoil this movie. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Okay, we're back, and this is your final warning. We will be spoiling this movie. So, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Fatal Attraction since 1987, you want to give people a refresher? Dan, Beth, and Ellen Gallagher are a happy family living in a tiny apartment in New York City with their dog, Quince. Dan and Beth head to a work event at a busy bar to meet work friends where Dan has a brief encounter with Alex Forrest, who works for the publisher represented by Dan's law firm. The interaction is simple enough, and they remember each other at a meeting the next weekend. Circumstances lead to them sharing a drink at a restaurant, where a quick discussion about discretion paired with the fact that wife Beth is out of town, leads to a sexual romp back at her place. He leaves, but gets coaxed back into spending the next day with her, heading to the park, having dinner, listening to music. Then, in his attempt to leave again, is confronted by a distraught Alex who has slit her wrists at the thought of him leaving. Dan stays another night, but then attempts to return back to his life of normalcy, involving buying his daughter a pet rabbit, buying a home in the suburbs, and potentially making partner at his firm. Alex does not play by the same rules, harassing him over the phone, introducing herself to his wife as a potential buyer for their apartment, following him to his new home, slaughtering and cooking the aforementioned pet rabbit, culminating in a final showdown between Alex and Beth with a kitchen knife in their new home. A brief struggle results in Dan drowning Alex before one last bolt of manipulative energy shocks Alex into one final surge to be met with a bullet in the chest from Beth. If I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. We close on a Gallagher family picture in the foyer. And there's a kidnapping in there, too. There's a lot <laughs> going on. Yeah. There's a lot going on. This is a successful psychological thriller, and it's really interesting. It's being made in the late 80s, and in the 90s, this is a typology movie that kind of goes on to be a thing, and uh, a, a, you know, a consistent presence throughout the box office, and this one is probably at the earlier part of the wave. There's some other movies like Razor's Edge and stuff that start to come up before this. And there are some people who would say that this is similar to the movie Play Misty for me. Having said that, it's clearly such a uh, monumental impact on the box office that, like I said, you have this genre playing into the mid-90s. This, what is the worst thing that could happen in this situation? You know, these very frightening moments of the worst thing that could happen for anybody who's got full of anxiety, like... These are movies that are bad for people like that because uh, it, it definitely goes to this is literally the worst thing that can happen in this situation. But on the other hand, you shouldn't be in this situation. So maybe it's OK to put that out there. Tyler, what do you think about the story that we go on with uh, the screenplay here? I, th I think it's very effective. But I think one of the most frustrating things for me about this movie 
is just how easily he slips into the affair. Yes, it was one of my top points I wanted to bring up. I do think that Alex is villainous in the movie, but I think it's the movie doesn't go into enough of like he's also very much to blame for this happening and I don't know it's it how quickly he slips into it is such a, like a big part of the movie for me at, at least until you know Alex starts boiling the rabbit or you know doing some of this stuff like I don't feel bad for him at the like for what he kind of puts this woman through yeah yeah you, you are sitting there going like yeah you she's gonna divorce you you're gonna lose your house in connecticut your apartment you're gonna live in a shoebox and you know you're gonna be stuck paying child support payments and you're gonna be you know it's it's this isn't gonna go well for you this is what happens to people who do this you know like i'm with you tyler but i mean i'll tell you where it starts to really be like when she takes his daughter out of school and starts messing with innocent people who didn't do anything i think the movie kicks into high gear when she pretends to be buying a house and like it does feel like oh you're gonna be stalking this guy out in the suburbs and i can see where this is going the kidnapping scene happens 96 minutes in, if you can believe it. Yeah. It's so far into the movie when that happens. I am of the type of person who thinks infidelity is wrong. I don't think you should cheat <laughs> on your partners. I think that's going to go for most people. <laughs> that being said, I think there is a general understanding that adults that involve themselves in affairs is supposed to exist and what we get the result of their weekend together turning into a, i think in description of this movie this is like it's sometimes she's referred to being as clingy like we can find another ad that adjective is a gross understatement but go on <laughs> gross understatement but the idea is like you're supposed to be cool about this affairs happen all the time he picked the wrong one of, of anyone he could have an affair with. And I think to add more context as to like the inciting incident here, like what, Ty like what Tyler brought up about, like, man, how easily he slips into it. We don't really, tell me, do y'all think he, we really get an idea of his life being unhappy or like not unfulfilling? Not at all. Right. He's happy. That's what's so frustrating. Like, Ann Archer seems to be the sweetest wife ever. Like, like She's an the, angel. Yeah, like, I, I, I wanted Harrison Ford to come in from Patriot Games and rescue her here because, I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, that was the part thing that was kind of hurting me throughout this. I'm just like, ah, oh, man, it's not like she's like a workaholic and doesn't care about him or like she's like, right. or like, or like, it's not like uh, she's an abusive mother or like. It's great. Right. This woman is great. And it makes you angry at Michael Douglas for that. Like, you're just like, ah, <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, th there's no ability to sympathize with him. And I think that's right. what Tyler was talking about. Like, it, he falls into it. I don't know. Like, it's in what, 20 minutes in the movie or 15 even like it happens fast. Yeah. So you kind of have to overlook that. And uh, the tension that comes thereafter is good. But I mean. The whole, like, oh, no, I'm going to get caught. That can be a frustrating thing, and I'm glad the movie didn't just stay there. He actually tells his wife, and I got to credit the movie for, for going that direction. I mean, it does enter a little, another level of real, just, like, comes clean. She's reasonably affected by it, but then also grasps the gravitation of, like, they have a stalker chasing the family, and there's another level of danger that's associated with this now. 
and it shows him in the doghouse beyond the doghouse like at a hotel like you know like realizing like i didn't want this to happen and i had no choice and i mean it's kind of nice to see him have to sit in it a little bit funny people come up to glenn close all the time and like you saved my marriage i'm just like well, think ahead. This doesn't lead you to anything good. Uh, that, that's also, un- unfortunately, a, a very wrong takeaway from the movie as well. It's an unfortunate takeaway that those people, they come up and thank her for saving their marriage. <laughs> right. It's like, if if that's what you got from this movie, it's... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was important to bring up that it does happen a little too easily. That, that, that them them getting together for a, a weekend like it's it just kind of happens too too easily and how it might be something that uh russell your words were like you kind of just have to deal with it like to get through the rest of the movie there are other ways to ha- like make that mitigating perhaps like he wasn't in a situation where he was drinking too much or like didn't have his faculties like he was fine it just the opportunity was there and he took it i'm not trying as i that's the whole reason i said that I'm one of those guys that thinks infidelity is wrong. But the seemingly agreed upon, like, you gotta be cool about this. There's a little bit of formality, like the unwritten rules that she follows just enough, but then introduces her manipulative ways to get the hooks in there. I think Tyler had alluded to this earlier, but I think that there would be some very interesting mental health discussions that go to this today. I think she did think that she was getting in for something small but then she fell for him bigger and then with these attachment issues uh there's probably some damage that this movie doesn't go into in the past i don't need them to necessarily it might be perhaps better and easier if they don't spoon feed us that i think tyler alluded to this i think this movie goes down differently today in the 80s you could just say that lady is crazy whereas now it's like this is a person in need of help and it's viewed more tragically not so much as a villain per se but as a tragic maybe victim debatably which is where I was going, uh, essentially, was pretty much, it reads as, as Russell said, oh, she's crazy in the 80s, and now it's like, we should probably get her some help, and I think that at the time, I don't think, I don't know if this was a thing, but there actually is a diagnosis for people who have a unrealistic infatuation with people where, and it's, uh, I'm gonna butcher this name, it sounds French, but they're, D. Clarenbolt syndrome, but it's also called erotomania. But the it's characterized by an individual's delusions of another person being infatuated with them. Hmm. That's probably the thing that's probably shifted the most on the end this. And I also want to say, like, I also there, it's a little bit unfortunate that we don't have anybody from the female perspective watching this one. I think it's one of those things where I wonder how they, how much they think like, look guys, look how uncomfortable it is. Like this guy cheated and he's in a really tight spot. And I'm glad the movie didn't stay at that because I don't know how fulfilling that is. Uh, As we've all said, like there's something hard to sympathize with this character. I mean, and honestly it even does kind of like, you know, he goes in and like strangles her basically beating a physically weaker woman on the floor it's just kind of like this is this is a little tough this is a little tough right now i'm like i and at the end of the day i'm far more worried for his daughter and again his sweetheart of a wife than i am for him i'm happy the ending's happy but boy that's a complicated situation to digest (laughs) do you think the uncomfortable scenes the stuff that's meant to make you fidget in your seat a little bit 
Do you think that is what makes this movie good or better? Or do you think it's the reason why our audience and critics score on Rotten Tomatoes dips below the 80%? Brian Fry, co-host of us, uh, he, he doesn't like to feel the cringe. I do. I like to be made to feel uncomfortable and that's an emotional... People don't like to be afraid. They ride roller coasters so you can have that fear of falling without literally falling to your death and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's part of the magic of movies. They make you feel things in a quasi-safe environment. I liked that tension that came from it. Yeah, same. I liked the tension, but also that there was some, some uncomfortable... And I had forgotten this because it had been so long since I had seen it. I thought the movie kind of... My recollection was that the movie did kind of let him off but it does like at times it doesn't she very much is like why did you do this then if this meant nothing to you like she actually asks him that at one point and i'd actually forgotten about the scene where he tells his wife like i my recollection again was he went behind her back and kept trying to manipulate things so that she never found out so i, I am kind of glad that the movie did kind of push some of that uncomfortableness but i honestly i think if it were made today i think it might have actually been more maybe i think this has been redone in other formulas i have to admit this is not a type of movie that i pick up as frequently but i feel like maybe i don't have the specific titles and lists in front of me i feel like the formula had been done before and has been done many times since then for sure oh yeah and this is something to kind of go into because there are some some steamy scenes in this movie you know the kind of like erotic sex thriller has been has been done and was actually pretty popular in the 90s yes i think you're right about that i think do you think that's some of what's drawing people to the movie just for its it's uh intense sexy like this is a lot this is a lot um for a, a, a movie particularly in the 80s i might add like by the 70s terms this might not have been so wow that's a lot but it is a lot and uh, it's a lot for 1987. We're in the Reagan years right now. You know, the world has tightened up a lot in movies, if that's a fair thing to say, Tyler. I do think it's fair. And it, it's actually funny. I've forgotten that the director of this had also done uh, Nine and a Half Weeks with Tim Basinger. So the, there was literally a scene where uh, they're in the elevator and the way the sunlight kind of hits everything in the shot and it's kind of like, almost kind of like soft quarry, soft core. Yeah. Where I was like, I was like, oh man, this movie's ripping off nine and a half weeks. And I was like, oh wait, it's the same director. Afterwards, I was like, oh wait, it's the same director. <laughs> he's doing what he's doing. It's not a ripoff if it's yours. I just thought it was interesting how she wanted him, not just for him, but she wanted the family life. She wanted to have this child with him. And this is the part that does, I think would have made her more tragic. This movie doesn't try to make her that way. But I, again, upon the more you sit on and think about it, because this movie makes you think about it afterwards, the more you do start to really commiserate with her. She doesn't seem like this evil force. She seems incredibly desperate, even right down to like how she makes him spaghetti and he leaves his wife's spaghetti in the refrigerator and feeds it to his dog. The fact that it's the same exact dish, I think, says a lot. Like, this is a woman who's accomplished, successful. She's, you know, attractive. And but I mean, he's leaving a wife who's very supportive and awesome and, you know, attractive and all. It's just like. You're leaving your spaghetti to go get some spaghetti somewhere else, and you shouldn't go get spaghetti somewhere else. You should eat the spaghetti you have. <laughs> there is a lot I want to add in to what you just mentioned. The, the idea that she is successful. She works for this publishing company. She runs a meeting with these five other lawyers. She has her own apartment in New York. Now, I get that prices were different 
35 years ago, but also like she's 36. Like she's quite successful. Successful enough that you might think she has it together. What we don't get is some type of history of her tangled web of people that she, or of men, we'll say, who have fallen into her trap. We got a little taste of that. What taste? He goes and looks up the, um... The thing about her dad? Yeah, the, there's, there's a hint that she murdered her dad. She actually makes it a point to be like, I don't sleep around. Like, I don't do this. It's fuzzy. It's fuzzy. I, I, I'll be honest with you. This is where, like, I don't know if she's just abused as a child, maybe, but that's where I was getting from this. I don't know. I don't know. But, like, she lives in a place, like, her apartment is nice, but the building isn't? The building's like a magic trick to get in? This is New York City before it has been gentrified in this neighborhood. This meatpacking district, I don't yeah, think, yeah, is yeah. high real estate at this point in time. Now, today, I think it is. But I, I think there is something interesting. For instance, like, there's the idea that, you know, this, this duplex I live in now, in five years, if I were still living in this same duplex, it might be like, oh, wow, he's living below his means. And it seems like, is she living below? Like, she's got this very successful job, but she's living in the meatpacking district. The, she she has like high quality tastes. She's obviously desirable. They she dresses well. Dresses very well. She likes the opera. Like like there's stuff that like there's not much of a of like any given clues as to. I mean, we addressed it of why she's like this or that she has a history of this, and it's just like this ends up happening to Dan, and. It, it didn't have me thinking of it during the movie, but it has me thinking of it now. Like, does she have a history of this? Would this have kept going? Or was this just the one guy? Was this the one? That- I got the feeling that we were going to get that, but they didn't go that direction real hard. And it's not, it's, it's only a two hour movie. So it, there, there's not, it, it, I'm trying to think, was it, would it have further confounded things to try to add in an explanation? Or is it sometimes just good enough for it to be happening, to be scary? in the way that it is and to not really have an explanation one is it just an alternate universe where she just comes across tom hanks who's like a widowed husband on the rebound like sleepless in seattle style i mean he gets stalked too by the way in that movie that's endearing and they come together and if he's uh available and there for her and then they have a wonderful relationship do we even have a problem with this condition that she's got like is it bad if you're ultra attached to somebody who's ultra attached to you back like, can, can this problem not be a problem? So I, I was sitting there going like, what if you didn't fall in love with the wrong person? Do you have a problem? Did Dan make a mistake by going back and spending the day in the park with her and eating spaghetti? Which, by the way, at 36 years old, you're going to cook for a partner. You don't choose spaghetti. It's a peasant's meal. That could be a mistake. If I were like with the boys. Well, yes, that's a date. That's a date. I that's mean... just it. Yeah. If I was out here with the boys. Now, uh, like you've got a girlfriend, Tyler, and you're married. If I'm sitting here with the other single boys, I would be saying to them, that's a mistake you made by going back over. Vince Vaughn would have a rule in the, in the Wedding Crashers book. I mean, he would definitely be calling it, we got a stage five clinger here. Yeah, I think it would break, I think it would break his, uh, his meter. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing in the book for that. There's, there's no rule in the book for that. Rule number 72, you don't let her cook for you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I think there was like, and he knew it. He knew it. He was doing his best to be like, yeah, I'm really busy. I got to work. And immediately she was very quick with the, well, do your work over here or come over after. And that was another thing in, I guess, late 80s, 90s, where clingy girl as a trope existed. Maybe we were getting just like a 
a little surface taste of that before realizing what we really were getting into with the crux of this movie. Uh, but I, I, I do think that the next night, obviously, is when we get that incident of he's going to leave and she goes the, the next, the huge step um, very early in the movie. This is maybe 40 minutes in, maybe. Yeah. Where she, she comes up to him with her hands behind her back. What are you guys thinking? I guess, Russell, this was your first time, right? The, the movie just turned. What are you thinking when her hands are behind her back? Because I definitely wasn't thinking, oh, she immediately went. I was worried she was going to come at him. because Again, I know the premise of what this movie's going to go. I mean, I had seen screenshots of her holding a knife. So I actually thought this was maybe the scene where the knife is coming out. And like, I thought this was going to escalate into slasher mode faster. You know, I did not expect the whole, like, I'm going to hurt myself to get you to stay kind of thing. And I was just like, whoa, this movie turned. And that's when I started to get a little more into it because that this woman's going to go do anything. She cut her own risks. I mean, and, you know, I mean, dropping battery acid and melting out the engine of your car. Uh, sorry, dropping acid on not dropping acid, like drug acid, but like pouring acid <laughs> on your car and melting it through down to the parking structure is literally not in the top five worst things that she's about to do. You know, Carrie Underwood's maybe before he cheats has nothing on this on this on this lady. If she writes the song, uh, you know, the, the chorus will include, I boiled his bunny. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, a great music video. Needed more bunny boiling. Which was the thing that my parents warned me about. Oh, really? Was, I thought was it was the, the double date. Where the friends, they, I thought they were too chummy on the double, double date. They weren't sitting on the same side of the table as each other. And they were hugging and getting cheek kisses by the other date. And I figured your, double, your parents were on the double date going like, no, no, no. We're not on that kind of double date. <laughs> I'm out of here. No way. <laughs> Oh, that when when I was originally told about this movie, I think that would have been a weird thing to tell someone under ten years old of why they didn't watch a movie. No, yeah, the, it was the bunny. I thought that that happened a lot earlier in the movie than it actually ultimately ends up happening. I will say those scenes, like with the with the wrist and um, some scenes toward the end of the movie, Glenn Close just rocks it in this movie. Like you don't see a lot of movies that, for women at this point, like, that are this strong of a role, and she got it. And she was in her 40s when she got this, too, which, is, I mean, unfortunately don't get that kind of casting in movies like this anymore anyway. It reminds me of the 30 Rock scene where, like, Liz Lemon's like, there are never any roles for women in their 40s in, in, in the entertainment industry, and Alec Baldwin's good, and nor should there be. <laughs> like, <laughs> which, unfortunately, is a horrible truth about the industry, but... I'm not advocating that. Go on, though. <laughs> but she, like, ultimately tragic as the, the, the wrist scene is, I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. It's one of, like, the scenes where I was just like, oh, man. Like, you said this movie switches into another gear. It's where everything about her kind of starts to unravel. And it's not played really for hysterics. Like, I, I haven't felt or like that in a long time from the lines why are you wet oh yeah yeah it's great <laughs> i would like to leave now <laughs> well but it, it's we so effective it's successful yeah it's effective it's effective because of how she plays it you're right she she does shine even in this we'll say villainous role but she she, she shines and it in it's a when you said effective, I thought what you meant was like effective to us in the audience, but it really, it's effective. It works on Dan. If you put yourself into the role, because this is a realistic role that you could like, I mean, you know, God forbid you would, but like the, the situation where someone is 
stage five clinger, and then you go this far, what is your role? You make sure somebody doesn't bleed out, but it does enough, and it's it's a it's a move that ramps up the intensity to eleven, and then the next day she how how seamlessly she she switches back to like the lovey dovey style language, or it's like hey I understand things are cool. You follow up a very intense scene like that with a very put together, mature, innocuous scene of meeting him at his office. And now he doesn't expect to see her. And that's you you don't want that, obviously, uh, fellas. Like you don't you don't want that girl showing up to your work. But then she what the the things that she she says, she invites him to go see Madame Butterfly. So like picking up on the thing that like, oh I know you like Which that's foreshadowing. Because he had told her her about like the thing that scared him. But then also, like, her trying to be mature, or her, her faking being mature, like, hey, that's all in the past, forget about it, is even scarier, almost, is when this character is acting normal, and you know that what's going on in the head is all manipulation and getting what she wants, it's psychologically thrilling, as the, as the tagline would go. I'm glad you brought up the Madam Butterfly, like, that, that is a fun piece of foreshadowing thing, and that play, you have... The Japanese butterfly, if you will, is somebody who marries and bears a child, but he has no intention of loving her and staying here forever. And he just like leaves and goes for an American woman and then driving her into despair. That woman commits suicide in the Madam Butterfly, which will get put a pin in that the ending of this might have actually gone that direction. Do you want to stay on Glenn Close for just a little bit longer? I mean, she had a hard time getting this role. They initially said, like, don't even make her come in like this isn't this isn't going to be hers. Like, it's a waste of her time. She had to fight to get it. She was persistent, and uh, she rocked her screen test. It's 100% out of her being inspired and wanting this more than everybody else. Again, you're, you're never, like, you're, you're, I mean, you're on your seat, the edge of your seat this whole movie, but, like, even in, like, scenes where she tells him that she is pregnant, which, first off, the math on when the affair happens to when she says she's pregnant that's not how that works. I wasn't sure if she was bluffing at that point or not, but clearly she wasn't later. But it, it at that point, it doesn't matter because he's already, it's to mess with him because she tells him like, I'm going to raise it. I don't care if you're part of it, like whatever. I just want you to know that it's out there. And that keep continues to drive him and his kind of like, what am I going to do? Frantic state and it's it's all to mess with him whether it's true or not but i mean i think when they wanted to get somebody in there they were expecting like let's get ken basinger let's get sharon stone let's get somebody who's just going to come in and just like you know be a total knockout i'm not saying glenn close is not attractive but that's what she had to overcome they were kind of in that vein like oh this woman has to be a total seductress it's kind of better that she wasn't i was gonna say what she brought to the table was the other three quarters of the movie and maybe maybe if she had been that way maybe you might have had some quasi reason why this could have happened uh like we were all struggling with why did this happen but i don't think i mean what glenn close delivers by being so awesome at the whole other 95 percent of the character is why she's ranked at number seven on the afi greatest villains character and why this movie's ranked number 28 for that matter on the afi thrillers list like it's her that she's what does this you're right it, it is it is her 
performance and i think just a uh, little kudos to, to the director for framing it in the way like sh she has every opportunity to show off this character it wasn't until you just said it russell that like number seven on villains that's <laughs> really high uh, <laughs> i didn't realize it when you said it like wow because because she she is both scary and capable but also l l little things about her performance um, I, I take away like out of her performance sitting in the dark while opera music plays while you're in silhouette that's that's not what we're talking about here we're, we're talking about sort of the, maybe it's like a combination of like her maybe dark eye shadow with with like sunken eyes in a way uh combined everything about um what glenn does as alex is frightening still and that's without the slasher aspect at the very end she's she's in a class with mr potter from it's a wonderful life nurse ratchet wicked witch of the west darth vader norman bates from psycho and hannibal lecter from silence of the lambs like that's elite yeah. class that you're in right there i think it's scary because uh you, you you do realize how susceptible anyone can be to manipulation or you know the, the movie that coined the phrase gaslighting or uh j just things about how real it is certain things become more real as you get older like uh the fear of losing your mind as opposed to the fear of death the idea that they're like the worst possible thing that could happen in the end hey you know our family survives it all aside from whitey the bunny it's almost as if they included the bunny just so that we didn't have to see the dog die somebody had to die <laughs> it was whitey but this movie, in, aside from aside from the actual uh, affair slash stalking slash aftermath, there's a lot about this movie that seems very real, including like that little double date, like hanging out together when the friend Jimmy is toasting to his potential new partnership. Like that all seemed very real. All these friends seem real, and the realer this movie seemed, the more invasive the fear of like this terrible things people sitting in the seats in 1987 uncomfortable with the idea of i'm sitting next to my partner right now this is possible it for any of us that's not scary like alien is scary yeah it's not like scary like jason you know like she's not like on a killing spree you're right i i, I and i think that is is scarier than jason personally this is around every corner in the world very very cool and uncomfortable but just cool approach to fear it's kind of funny coming back to it i mean tyler you got to it sooner than us but i mean you still would have like i mean glenn close had for us had already been like i mean to me like i first took her in as cruella Deville. she was a pretty wild character in that as well a kid's movie but she did a good job in that i'd seen her do other things where she's tough like an air force one and stuff like that so to me i i knew that she could have had this in her i think she's a good actress but at this point in time at this point in her career where she is She's kind of the nice lady, and this is this is this is a left turn from her. She wanted to do a character that would demand more of her. She wanted to play a character that was complicated and and twisted like this, and a character who was supposed to be sexy. She knew she could do it, even though nobody else really thought of her. So she broke a typecast that she had for herself in doing this. So if there's ever an inspiration for somebody who's entered the midpoint of their career, if you feel like you're established and you want to break that, Glenn Close works pretty well. Like, I mean, like, she gets work pretty well and through the era that uh, Tyler was alluding to. She may not be always getting the first build person on there, but 
she goes through the awkward phase for females at least a little better than the industry tends to treat people. And perhaps th- maybe this movie was the right movie at the right time to make all that happen for her. For sure, and I'm, I'm trying to find it right now while you were talking about that. The, there was one actress that was up for it, but because of how much it would have like changed the how her fans viewed her and things like that, they didn't take the role. And the, I think there were a lot of people around that time that were afraid to to jump into that, which I think is how Glenn ended up getting it. The whole movie actually had a hard time getting greenlit. They had a hard time finding a leading man for this role, too. The writer was expected to, uh, James Dearden, was expected to both write and direct this movie. So this movie changes director's hands. It changes lead man's hands. So Douglas... Uh, his experience with the less experienced director led him to want another director. They took Deirdre off. They actually kept him on the production. They got Brian De Palma in there to direct. That didn't pan out, and he didn't like Michael Douglas. And so the producers, Lansing and Jaffe, just wanted to stick with Douglas because like, he was more, more constant at this point. So De Palma is then released, and they go through multiple attempts at directors. I mean, John Carpenter's one that strikes me as... Uh, just, I, I like him. I wonder what he would have done with this movie. But I got to say, Adrian Lin did do a really good job here. And I will say, if De pa- I'm a big fan of De Palma, even though I know some of the things that he directs are sometimes questionable. He's, he's very uh, voyeuristic. And sometimes, again, that also makes people uncomfortable. I will say, as, even as a fan of his, if he had directed this, I don't think that it would hold up the way that it does now. It's interesting. Adrian Lynn doesn't have like a huge catalog necessarily. I mean, it's Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Attraction, Jacob's Ladder, Indecent Proposal, Lolita, Unfaithful, and Deep Water. Like, not a long directorial list here. And so. It was Sally Field. Sally Field for Alex. And she turned it down because she's like, my fans won't like this. I, I, how did this guy not get more work? Is what I'm wondering. It does seem odd, right? Like, like this is his fourth major movie? Like and, and to, to to shoot the moon as he did, he he gets he gets nominated for best director, and in the next six years he makes two movies. That's kind of weird. I wish that I actually had an explanation for that or some kind of insight. But other than sometimes that happens, that's happened to a couple of directors. Like I remember, um, I think it's at least been ten years since like Beasts of the Southern Wild came out, and everyone was excited for that director's next movie, and it didn't come out till like two years ago so there was just like a lot of time where he couldn't get projects off the ground despite having a a best director nomination for his first movie or maybe he's doing the move where it's like all right i'm not taking any jobs unless the first choice and the second choice are ousted so i'm like that's how i temper my expectations is like (laughs) i'm i'm only gonna be like the guy who comes in and saves the production. Well, this time, I think he was literally the 12. They, they said over 20 directors. So. Right. That's what he, I he meant was, to say. He was so, I was going to say, he's so the opposite of like the first choice. <laughs> yeah. He's like the last man standing like, you know, like, I'll make your movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you'll do it? Like, yeah. we're, we're everyone. I mean, we'll pay you. We'll just... pay you. Just like, no, I, I assume that. Like, I'll, I'll do it. Like, are you mm-hmm. kidding with us? Great, we got him. We got one. 
<laughs> and then they forget that the, that they needed to put the phone on mute, so they're like, "Oh shoot, shoot!" They should hear how excited we are about this. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I think this movie, over time, lives off of its psychological thrills. I think I think the sex scenes and stuff like that actually helped sell tickets at the time. I I really do think that that's part of what led it led it to be what it is. I mean, I think I think being a steamy movie is what led it there. And it's kind of funny. Uh, parts of it do strike me as odd and offbeat and funny. And I thought, was this on purpose? And I, I saw an interview where Adrian Lenn was saying, like, you know, I didn't want the love scene to be take place in bed because it's just so dreary. I thought it was uh, that would stink. And I remembered uh, I had sex with a girl in a countersink and, you know, the plates were crashing around. And you just have to laugh. He said, you need to make people laugh in a sex scene on, on screen. I, I was kind of sitting there going like, you do you in a movie like this like i mean he like literally picks her up uh with her butt facing the camera like i mean it's kind of awkward like he's like walking around with no pants and a shirt on you know carrying her he back to the his, room yeah he yeah can't like get one foot out of the leg of his pants um yeah I mean, like that i was like is that right for this movie it, that was my that was my number one i'm questioning you adrian lynn like do you want to make people laugh there yeah, I don't. I don't know if I would. I would sum up the sex scenes in this movie as being comedic. Nor did I feel like that was the direction. There was a little bit that was funny. Like that, that's that's kind of that's a, a, a little funny. But that's it's not really about. Um, like, hey, I, I I thought this needed a good laugh. No, yeah, I I just thought that was a strange comment from the director. I thought it. I felt it. Michael Douglas did say, like, you know, doing sex scenes in movies is actually really hard. I mean, you don't want to come off as being cheap, like softcore porn. And you don't want to lose the movie at that point. You don't want to lose the momentum. I mean, it's actually is a difficult thing for a director to approach. And that was an interesting thing I had not thought of before. So often they stick that in movies in order to sell tickets to, you know, we're doing this to entice people to get there. But the notion that that is actually, I think of it as a cheap trick to some degree. Like, like I think of it as a huge risk. This either improves or like it swings the pendulum really far. This either improves the overall experience of this movie the decision to call it a thriller compared to an erotic thriller, like a whole genre of erotic movies. The, the idea that, like, I, I think it is either made better or made worse, and it's sort of like zero sum. Uh, I, I, I think that there's times when it's like, this is awkward. This is taking away from my enjoyment. And I'm happy to say that, like, with this movie, I was like, this makes it, this fits. It makes it feel more real. I dug what his decisions were. Not saying my preference that it went into it, but like it also could have pushed those more to the forefront than they did too. I feel like the, there was just enough of that, like you said, to get that audience there, to get that extra little bit before the the thriller aspects kind of jump in. I, I for the most part, I think it worked. I think I awkwardly chuckled when he couldn't get his pants off at that point, but I, I'm glad you brought up that quote because I was going to bring it up if you didn't about how he did it that way because that's how he also had sex with a girl i was like what a weird also weird confession in an interview maybe maybe he was a total nerd and didn't at all and that was his way of like <laughs> like so the guy's back or like his back like like i don't know like his uh like high school friends are just like yeah i don't know i think that that's i think that's a lie <laughs> No, he, that, he, was, he was in the single friend circle where they were all comparing stuff and he's yeah, like... Yeah, I did it on the sink with with 12 girls. <laughs> you know? Maybe 13. Yeah, it was 13. Definitely 13. <laughs> well, I, I, May have been a 14th, I don't know. 
What makes me sound better? I think it might <laughs> add to the idea that, like, why does a guy that is seemingly not unhappy, things are seemingly going well, why does a guy decide to make this decision? And I think the banter in the, uh, <clears throat> I don't think anything at that very busy bar, like party, that restaurant bar party, I don't think there was anything really in terms of a spark there. But I think that the uh, dialogue in the restaurant, when it's raining, and they're just like, let's grab a drink while we get a cab. Like, and then leading that into the first sex scene. Um, I think there's the, the goal, you need to add a little bit that's like, this has got to be hot. Like if I'm, a, if I'm at the pitch meeting, like we need something hot here. I mean, we, need to, we need to make it seem like this is the part of the reason why this is happening is because this is too good of an opportunity with too hot of a partner. And so we need to get that feeling through the scene. But that, I think, is it. I still am a little baffled by the idea of, like, it's got to be funny, y'all. We're going for yucks. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Now, we got to talk about this. This movie had an alternate ending. Originally, Alex Forrest was scripted as slashing her throat and the film's end with a knife to make sure that Dan had the fingerprints on the, on, on the knife he was being taken away by the police and it had a cassette tape that Alex had given to Dan that she was threatening to kill herself. And upon realizing that, uh, Beth takes the tape to the police and acquits Dan for the murder. And they do have a happy ending. And it's a flashback of Alex taking her own life by slashing her own throat at that point. While listening to Madam Butterfly, which is foreshadowing, as I mentioned earlier, of, the, of that play. Now, Siskel Niebert hated the ending of this movie. And they felt like it felt like, uh, you know, Friday the 13th. The villain even comes back to life. Yeah. That, like, that's a little bit cheesy to, to like, he drowns her and then she, like, reanimates. Like, I, I, I'm okay with, I'm okay with the, um, I'm okay with Beth coming in and shooting her. I think that would have just been fine. The whole choking her under the bathtub, I don't know that I wanted that myself, but t Tyler, what do you think about these two very, very different endings? I am in the camp, I actually think I would have liked the original ending. And the, the thing that I read of why it was changed is because it tested poorly and they felt that Alex got a, essentially got away with it and th they didn't see her physically punished on screen for everything that she put him through. Which again is why I feel like this was very different uh, interpretations in the 80s than would have been today. Yeah. I'm gonna think I'm with you. I, I've I've been mulling it over because I watched this movie weeks ago. Actually, when when you picked it right away, I was pretty excited to get to it, and I've rewatched it since then. And I first thought, no, I don't want that. That's that's this movie's long enough already, and I don't need all that. But the more I started thinking about it, the more I'm like, no, that's that's consistent with Alex's character. She would want to punish him, like it would be a last great stand. Like if I can't have you, like you're gonna, like that seems like I mean she cut her own wrist. Like that was step one. Like, that makes total sense that, like, slashing her throat would be, that's, that's cranking the amps up to 11, you know? And I, I do think they kind of get to a little bit of it in, in that ending scene where she's talking to Beth and kind of, like, digging into her leg yeah, with the knife and all of that, which I do agree the ending is kind of a little slashery, but, like, when that starts happening, I think I was very... Oh, I hate to use this word. I, th I think I enjoyed that aspect of the ending. <laughs> I, I hesitate to use the word. I think it was the most effective part of that ending. I'll, there we go. I'll go with another E word, effective. I think that was effective with her digging in. And like, I think that actually helped ratchet up the tension and make it less 
horror movie but more like psychological it's funny you see promotional like interviews with like they're like they're like no this was the right this was the right thing to do and then later other interviews come out and like glenn close was actually really staunchly opposed to the idea of doing this after the Poirier audience test reaction like they were pressured to change this he didn't like the idea they paid jeff lynn sorry um uh, wrong not not the lead singer of ELO. Um, they, they paid Adrian <laughs> Lin um, another $1.5 million to change it, which that is a good way to get somebody to change their mind on something. It's just like, Because nope. he didn't want to do it either. Yeah, I was going to say. He and Glenn Close didn't want to do it. It's like, nope, I stand by what I do, and this is what it needs to be, and I don't care what the test I can say. This is what it has to be. We'll give you $1.5 million. We're changing the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this is my fifth movie. I think I know what I'm doing. Ooh, cha-ching. What you just described, Russell, I, <laughs> I feel like is like the Tropic Thunder version of what would have happened. <laughs> so, uh, Ann Archer leaned into that, too. Like, uh, like there was an interview with her. I was like, I think they made the right choice. But, like, you can't even see in her. Like, like the person's just like, well, you wouldn't have been as involved with that. Like, implying, like, you're the one who shuts, she shoots her and shuts this movie down. She's like, no, I had a lot more acting on the other one, but I can't talk too much about it. And it's just like, you could kind of see her being like, I had more to offer and they took it away from me <laughs> i would have actually won best so, actress or best supporting actress yeah and glenn, had we kept the originals glenn close said the best original ending or was the original ending and that it was a gorgeous piece of film noir and uh, she killed herself to make sure that the prints were all over the knife and she gets arrested and she knows that she didn't do it but she's going to jail anyway audiences wanted some kind of cathartic ending and it frustrates her so three for three i agree with y'all i, I think i think i like the idea of this this ending that like this other ending had i been in the test audience my first take was oh i don't want that that's a little bit too dark and then i'm thinking about this whole movie's been too dark so i mean i'm not gonna lie if not that she's already not high on the villains list but if that original ending had happened she'd be a couple she's jumping mr potter and potter's higher up yeah i i I think that that cements her as one of the all-time great movie villains yeah if, if if the villain can like somehow get away with it i think the first thing that came to my head was uh you know watchmen from the graphic novel in the movie it's like yeah you know it it happened for 37 minutes ago like it's what we're dealing with is i'm telling you but it it, it already happened getting away with it yeah I, I i would be left with uh russell you mentioned the word like cringe i'd be left with that feeling and while that feeling itself isn't comfortable, it does like add to what I think hard to say the value, but it, it, it adds to how much this movie kind of impacts you in watching it. Yeah, I, I think I think that original ending is what I would have preferred too. Yeah. Now, what do you think about the atmosphere? We did talk a little bit about like the meatpacking district and like how it's kind of like that's a different meatpacking district than that we now know today. This is a kind of a dark, dismal, dreary depiction. Of New York, like there's not a lot of warmth. His apartment's very white, very sterile. Her apartment's very white, very sterile. I mean, the law firm feels stuffy now. And granted, '80s corporate world is super stuffy. Even an elder Parker walking around with a cigar filled with books all over the place and like cherry wood and stuff like that. And there's just something very stiff and rigid about this. The environments don't seem comfortable. I mean, and maybe the party at the beginning did, but nothing else after that's comfortable. And I, I think that's an, int- I mean, maybe that's intentional. I shouldn't say nothing else. The suburban uh, idealistic Connecticut thing is made to feel comfortable. But New York, is, which is where we are for a vast majority of this movie, not made to feel comfortable. 
it's dark and rainy. It kind of adds to the. I mean, they they have. I th- the rain is what takes them to the uh, the restaurant that led to their affair in the first place. Was he couldn't get his umbrella open, which was another weird comic thing that kind of felt out of place. Everything's just kind of dark, and if I remember this correctly, I think the only real light that happens is actually at the beginning of the movie. I think there's like the sunrise on everything, and then kind of everything just really gets kind of set in the motion of this yes cold, sterile... A lot of artificial light. I don't know, may, may, maybe that atmosphere was meant to be like why he went for it, is he felt cold and detached and it's not the only time actually the date that we all talked about like you know like that was an ill-advised day out at the park with the dog and stuff like that they made that look nice and appealing there's a lot of interesting stylistic choices not just the the attempts at humor but some of the the lighting the the way that they shoot things like She's basically giggling and they like roll around in the ground like a meat cute and stuff like that. Like there's just that was the the one thing that I was sitting here thinking about because he was nominated for best director. And I was kind of thinking like the aesthetic. I was like, was there really anything other than like the sex scenes or anything that like aesthetic wise, like gave the movie like a personality or anything? And I couldn't think of anything. But now that you were mentioning like how how kind of cold it is and how kind of sterile it is. And I was like, maybe that's where a lot of it kind of stepped in, you know, director wise and production wise to kind of give it a little more personality outside of like the thriller and the kind of, uh, you know, stalkery aspect of it. I'd like to say in, in terms of what Lynn does to the feel of this movie, aside from when Beth and Ellen are with the family, you know, out in the burbs and the park. Once we get to a certain like time in this movie, and we are really introduced to the true Alex, that's when I think what Lynn does is he makes you feel like nowhere is safe. That yes. is pervasive. He, he painted a really nice picture of this kinetic at home, and then he took it away. Like you're not safe in the suburbs, kind of notion. Like in the '80s, you definitely are still the end of that white flight from the city. The city's not safe. It's not desirable. Still an attitude. And he's gone out to here, and she's followed him. And even how they shoot the the amusement park, which is probably a pretty nice amusement park, but uh, which, by the way, is, that's called Playland Park. They uh, they actually use that same park in Woody Allen's film Sweet and Low Down. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Dustin. Like they take that safety away from you. Yeah, most unsettling amusement park scene i think perhaps i've ever seen it that is a candidate for the best scene of the of the movie is um that coupled with juxtaposed with the understanding like when beth shows up and says i'm here to pick up ellen no she already did wait what that combo it really ramps up this is when the the tension is getting highest uh man just thinking about this movie like puts you back in that like this, for me, I would say like that feeling is enjoyable. I liked her apartment better than I liked his. Obviously, her district of where she lives is not as desirable, but hers it seems more spacious, more open. Uh, his seems very tight, not necessarily, which obviously is why it's motivating him to go out to Connecticut. But I mean, I, I throughout this movie, I kept thinking like, shouldn't he be dressed a little bit nicer? Shouldn't he like he has a, he drives a night he drives an eighty one Volvo? Like, I mean, 
He's had a pretty successful law firm handling some pretty important cases. I was a little surprised by, um, they didn't make any mentioning like, this is a breakthrough that you've never been on before and now you're on the big ticket. Like, I, I felt like he wasn't as glamorous as she was. Like, this, why are you so stuck on this guy? Like, you, you know, she's a better dresser than he is, you know? I mean, not like she's driving an amazing sports car and stuff like that, but I mean, uh, actually her car kind of sucks, but I mean, <laughs> his car's not amazing. <laughs> Well, I think I think that's it. I think I think Russell, that's it. Is it's not what makes this guy special; it's that he's he, he kind of is any guy. Is he really that out of her league if he just wasn't married? Is my point. I think that's what makes it scary to the audience: is that you don't have to be pulling in six figures to be the object of this attraction, of this fatal attraction. You, you think it's better if he's the Tom Hanks as the any guy kind of guy. We don't even have to use another celebrity here. This could be anyone. That's why it's scary. You're right. Tom Hanks is too nice. You're, you, if this, Tom Hanks is in this movie, they, she goes, are you discreet? And he goes, I'm leaving and I'm going to go to Connecticut now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very short movie. <laughs> Buzz looking alien. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, another thing Lynn does is he zooms in on um, Glenn Close when it's time to get crazy. And that hair that she chose, and she helped choose this. Uh, she she had she deliberated with what to do with it. She just let it go crazy. That was a great thing to do. Nothing personified what was going on internally, externally. She's disheveled at one point. She has like a baggy like white shirt on at some point, but which seems kind of like you know like I, did you escape from an asylum kind of thing and illusions yeah. of that kind of coming through. But nothing gets unhinged in her, even as she's flicking a knife on her leg. I mean, it's the hair. The hair, the hair just, uh, I mean, Google her. It's going to come up. There's 20 pictures of it. It's just like, it's like, you really should have taken the Tom Hanks approach and just said, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I have a loving family and I'm leaving. I think uh, the, you, you mentioned uh, the, the zoom in on Glenn Close. I really liked the zoom in. It, essentially, this is like in a way from Dan's perspective, but it's after the affair happened. And I believe they are either back at the apartment or at the new home. But you're, you're zooming in on Ann Archer's Beth at night skincare routine. And you do get a little bit of like, all right, here's cleavage in the mirror. But essentially what you're getting is like the husband's admiration for the ongoing beauty of his wife, of who he loves. And he's got a new, I would say that Dan acts, that, that Michael Douglas like acts and shows that he is realizing, like, why did I do this? I've got, I, I didn't have anything going wrong. I did like that. And, and so what, what you're seeing is, like, the director shows you all of the good that Michael Douglas is, is able to portray as, like, man, he took it for granted and he made a stupid mistake. You, you see it with that zoom in to Ann Archer's, like, skin routine. You see that in, like, the relationship with the parents when... What is she doing? What is Ellen, the daughter, doing? Like, she's practicing, like, a line with a top hat. Is she, like, in a school play or something? I don't know what it is, but he's just, like, you can tell he's acting so grateful for these gifts of a loving family. And this coupled with the scenes when he's looking at the, or when he's hearing the ringing phone. Do you, do you guys realize, like, like the ringing phone becomes, like, a trigger for fear? No, you're right, you're right, yeah. That, like, he, he I've never realized... been afraid of a phone call like that. Like Seriously? Uh, you know, during a, a break, a quick break we had earlier, Tyler and I were talking about Scream. That phone call, like, that, like, ringing phone, 
the ringing phone in this movie is like at least on par with because it's it's dealing with the the psychological fear of everything coming down this incredible relationship and family that i have is at risk because of some stupid mistake that if it really meant nothing and it didn't result in a stalker would still be awful but it actually is the worst is that she won't leave you alone and is now threatening your family this i this is i'm giving credit to the director here for this i think it's really really it, when the opportunities are given to the actors to show it and the actors follow through and execute with showing it it was I'm gushing too much for not being close to our rating section. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Glenn Close's character, she goes, she wears black when we first meet her at the party. And then after that, she wears largely white throughout. And sometimes it's a loss of innocence and you wear white and then you do a bad thing and then you wear black. Kind of the reverse of that. There's something very deliberate in choosing that. And I didn't read an explanation. Obviously, Wardrobe isn't always held up as, but there's a distinct move there that I'm curious about. Write to me if you, if you, do you either guys, do you pick up on that? Like, I was sitting there going, like, why'd they do that? I think the only other time that she doesn't wear white is when she's coming after the, this attempted suicide. I think when she visits him in the office, she's not wearing white. But I think you're right, every other time after that, she is in white. It's not like, it's not like the devil, I'm tempting you with red. I don't, I don't get it. Like, uh, it was a, it's, a, it's a very distinct decision. Um, I'm just curious about that. White normally makes you feel vulnerable. She's anything but that. I'm wondering if it's just the, this movie's interpretation of the common noir trope of the femme fatale. I don't know. If- now, Adrian Lynn did regret. Uh, Glenn Close <laughs> submerged in the bathtub being strangled down, and he put, like, white contacts in her lenses, which makes her look ghastly and supernatural. Again, this movie turns a little bit, I won't call it hokey, but it does, it does leave its genre at the end with her reanimating out of the bathtub. And, and, he, <laughs> right. does, and he, does, he does see that and regrets that wardrobe or makeup decision there. So, By the way, Glenn Close found out shortly thereafter she was pregnant. She was really getting roughed up in these scenes. She was worried that she was like, you know, being submerged and like, these are the things that you should be doing when you're pregnant. Despite everything that that's happening in this movie, I think you touched on this earlier, there, there are some moments of disconcerting violence towards women in this movie. Yeah. And he doesn't do anything to Ann Archer, but his, uh, yeah, there are some moments where, you know, <sighs> right, my see what you're So Glenn Close has the knife that she used in the movie hanging in her kitchen to this day. Fun little prop that she keeps and it's made out of wooden paper. It's not a real knife. That's an interesting thing to have your guests come in and see. I'd take so many pictures with it. <laughs> I'd love the idea of taking something from, from like, set. And Glenn Close was also allergic to tobacco. So for a few scenes when Alex is smoking the films, she's uh, not actually smoking cigarettes. So her unborn child is uh, at least okay from the smoking thing. So if your head's going to that, don't, don't panic too much on that one. So what a cool thing to be allergic to. The... the movie cigarettes uh not being like not, not being uh tobacco like for the longest time right and this is a good question i don't know how movie cigarettes are done i know how movie glass is done like everybody breaks bottles and throws people through glass and stuff like that but i don't know how cigarettes are done like i thought about that like i figured they were just handing you a cigarette and saying like i don't want to it's just like i got 1.5 million dollars it's like i will be smoking a cigarette in this scene <laughs> <laughs> I will give myself lung cancer. Just kidding. No, I, I, I used to know. 
and I don't remember off. I'm morally flexible. <laughs> All the listeners have. Like, if, if you pay retro movie one, if you pay retro movie roundtable one point five million dollars, will you have whatever you want in the show? <laughs> we know their price now. Our standards <laughs> will go out the window. <laughs> they are your standards. <laughs> we also know that when anybody is eating, you know, like that you normally have to, like you chew and you spit out. There's no way you could go through eating twelve cheeseburgers in a scene, right? So, like these these cigarettes, like. It's a non, it, it's just a, an herb that does nothing for you. It's just, just for, it's like uh, using milk instead of water in the, like, there, it's, it's just a movie trick. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure nobody thought, like, oh, they're having pregnant Glenn, Glenn Close smoke. No, she's fine. Yeah. And again, they, nobody knew she was pregnant. She didn't know she was pregnant, so. Okay. <laughs> it's time to go into our favorite part of the show, the superlatives. Are you ready to hand some awards? Oh, yeah. I am. Tyler, you're a guest. Do us the honor. MVP. We've touched on it. I don't. I don't need to go into any more details. It's going close. I saw that coming. Dustin, is this a sweep? Because that's what I'm doing too. Uh, actually, I probably tipped my hand uh, in the last thirty minutes. For me, it's Adrian Lin. But the setting up the opportunities for the actress to succeed, the opportunities for the actors to succeed, was well done, and uh, I really, really liked it. That's a great choice. If any, if there was ever a consideration for running up, that was that was it for me. But. I'm with Tyler and Glenn Close on this one. Best Supporting Actor. Are you going with the Oscar choice on this one, or the Oscar nominee on this one, Tyler? I am, and we we didn't really talk about her, at least big scene in my eyes, which was where she's been told about the affair. She's good at that. There's a whole scene where Glenn Close is like, okay, let me talk to her. That scene, again, depending on director how they chose to film it, different actress in the role. This could have been like a whole hysterical thing. This could have been like a huge thing. But her thing is, don't call here again. And then she hangs up the phone. And it works on so many levels. The disgust at Glenn Close, the disgust, disgust at Michael Douglas, the disgust at the situation that she's in. Just don't call here again. So good. I like how it was uh, portrayed that she was not fast to forgive. Ultimately, she chose to stay with him, which is a valid thing for some people. I'm not going to judge people early in the show. I wasn't saying like this is always what happens. I mean, you know, she chose to stay with him and but there was hurt and it showed and he would have to live with that forever. And I think that was evident as well. So like I said, Dustin mentioned this already. This movie feels real. I think a big part of that is Ann Archer. Good choice. Dustin. Yeah, Ann Archer. Ann, Ann Archer. Archer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's because I think she she handles the uh I'm actually going to like kind of swing the other way. It's it's she handles the the subtle the subtle things like the excitement that Dan says he'll go and see the house tomorrow morning. That actual like surprise in how that line is delivered. Really? You sure? Like um that type of genuine quality seems harder to deliver than screaming crying shock extreme emotions little subtle things like a, a graciousness or a, the type of things that like russell you come home you surprise mary with bouquet or something like that like there's that's that on there parti- i need to do that now thanks yeah <laughs> <laughs> that particular let's just say there's a way that she reacts unless like like you have to have experience with it in a way i think people i would guess that she got a lot of connection from audience members like wow he seems real seems genuine 
yeah, she seems awesome at the party, even as they're getting ready, like, yeah. first part of this movie. Like, I, I know the premise of what's coming, for better or for worse, and I'm sitting there going, like, oh, no, this isn't setting up the way I thought it would. There's Yeah, there's a lot of partners in movies like this that would be visibly, they would, like, I hate those parties. I don't like having fun like this. It makes you really have a hard time sympathizing all the way with the main character of Dan, but I think that's another one of those things that's real. It's a more realistic approach to the movie. It's not, they're not asking whether the audience is comfortable with it or not until the end, in which case they took painstaking money. Like they changed, they changed the ending. Hidden gem, Tyler. I think it's the conversation that this inspires because I think when it originally came out, like I said, it was meant to be one thing. And now you can look at it from a wide variety of angles. And there's a lot of it to interpret there's a lot of it that changes viewing it now than back in the 80s and i think that rewatchability that conversation that the movie is able to have is a hidden gem in itself because that is a hard thing for a movie to do outside of like watching a blockbuster and like oh the big action moment or whatever but this whole movie you can talk about and interpret and I, I think that is a hard thing to do. Tyler broke the box. We here at Retro Movie Roundtable find a way to talk for 90 minutes about any movie, including Leprechaun last week. So <laughs> That's a really cool answer, Tyler. I, 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 I like that um, because it's a complicated issue and one that could be very close and very detrimental to every family in the country and the world. So that's a good answer. Yes. And Dustin, Hidden Jim. When Alex asks for the unlisted number and the operator says no, she screams, F you! And the guy says, my plays are yours. <laughs> <laughs> you almost delivered that with a quagmire-esque, <laughs> Don't you compare me to him. <laughs> that was another one of those interesting uh-huh. moments of yeah. humor thrown in, where I was like, oh, would someone say that? This guy was so quick with that result. Uh, maybe operators at the time were used to that, so they all had a little witty comeback. That's true. <laughs> hidden gem. My hidden gem is going to be Jane Krakowski. It's the babysitter. Yeah, it's the babysitter. Yeah so, yeah, so I mentioned 30 Rock earlier in the show. I love 30 Rock, and this is a fun, unexpected place where it's just like, is that? And I looked it up, and what? It was Jane Krakowski. I didn't notice it was her, but just yesterday, on a different Skype call, I mentioned that 30 Rock is my favorite sitcom of all time. Yeah, but I, did, I couldn't tell that that was Jane Krakowski. Yeah. Uh, recast. If you had to recast somebody, put somebody else in their place, because we have really buttered up the actors in this one. This is going to be tough. Tyler, who are you recasting? Who are you putting in their spot? I would recast Michael Douglas. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a strong cast. I mean, I think he's good, but you're right. I mean, you're not going to recast Glenn Close and Ann Archer, so I mean, yeah. And if we're going with, with 80s, it's either Richard Gere or Mickey Rourke. Huh. Back when Mickey Rourke was a thing. If we're updating it a little bit, I've got three here. We got Clooney, we got Downey Jr., or we have Hugh Jackman. I feel like Clooney would just be too smooth for the whole situation. He'd just get out of it. That's, well, yeah, that's, that's fair. I, I didn't think <laughs> yeah. about it that way. I, thought more, I was thinking more about image. Yeah, that, those, those, those are good, interesting picks. Uh, Dustin, recast. I have two here, but there's minor roles. The small-time sheriff that we didn't mention these scenes at all, but Dan goes and talks to, like, the chief of the small town, or... Yeah, he offers he offers realistic but incredibly apathetic information. 
Yeah, I think his might name his name might be Vaselli, but I thought instead of the guy who's in the movie, instead of Sam Coppola, that we could have Arlie Ermey there. I considered this guy. I'm happy you came after him. I don't know Arlie Ermey as well. So Arlie Ermey is the drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. He, he oh wow, this, yeah, you're doing something intense with that role. I, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you came after this guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel well, but then if you look into this this guy, this Coppola guy, you realize one, he's not related to Francis Ford Coppola, and two, he's not. He, no, he's not, and two, he's in like a ton of movies in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. So it's kind of like he was someone that in the '80s you would have known that guy. So it almost made me feel bad for coming after him. So instead, uh, I yeah, also he offered didn't do a good job. as an alternate Wayne Knight as Jimmy. I like that. I actually thought, I was like, this guy reminds me of Wayne Knight. But, he does, uh, yeah. I don't do this often, so Chad's going to be smiling somewhere, but I'm going to recast Ellen Latson, who's a... Yeah. Who, yeah. But, uh, she's, she's a child actor, it's true. <laughs> um, I, I, I normally stand up for the child <laughs> actors in this one. And, uh, and furthermore, this is not her finest work. She is also in Vacation, Christmas Vacation. She's one of the kids of Cousin Eddie. Uh, this movie, I'm going to go with Danielle Harris. She might be a tad older, but I think she can still do the part just fine and still be. This is not a great movie, Halloween 4, but I do think she is good. Also, she's in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Unfamiliar. Best shot, Tyler. I originally had on here the elevator love scene, which is also, now that I think about it, also has a weird, somewhat comedic shot where the elevator stops and they just kind of stop and somebody walks by. Right. I've already talked about the lighting in that scene, but I'm actually going to talk about the shot of the look on his face when he comes home and realizes that Alex is there mm. talking to his wife when she was interested in the apartment. Yeah. I'm actually going to go with that shot. That's a great one. Dustin, best shot. For me, it's the like smash cut to the sex scene. I, I, we don't have a ton of sex scenes on our movies, and so they don't get talked about a lot. We talked about it a little bit. I thought it was uh thought it was good. I know that the like we discussed kind of the weird directorial choices, but I I thought it was good. I thought it's kind of like enough of what you needed there. You're right, that doesn't come our way very often. True romance had one, but we don't have that come our way very often. LA Confidential. LA Confidential did. That's a Tyler movie. Yeah, I think just the like faucet being turned on and then like getting but like it's not sweat perspiration wetness. It's like we're putting the water, like she puts the water on her body and his. I just like, I thought that was like, oh, this is this is pretty good. And so because we don't get that so often, it needed a space in our super. Uh, my best shot, Tyler tiptoed around it. The elevator shots are good. There's silhouettes. There's additional lighting on their feet and what they're, the angles in which they're going there. It doesn't seem cheap because it's good camera work. It's handled seriously and it's done well and. It does seem like it's a lost opportunity for Aerosmith to come in with Love in an Elevator. No, I'm kidding on that. Uh, they, they didn't do that, and that's why it was done well. So um, good, good, and good. That's why it was done well. <laughs> Best scene, Tyler. Because it sticks into my head so much, it's the scene where she slits her wrists. The why are you wet? Yep, yeah. that's a major turning point. This movie has a number of turning points, but that's probably the most abrupt and unforeseen one. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, Dustin. I, I think just to tap into the things that would strike fear into our families in the audience, it's when Beth realizes and we as the audience realize that Alex has picked up Ellen from school. The absolute worst thing that could happen to a family, right? I'm glad you pointed that out. It's, That's the part where I was most afraid. I was just like, oh no. 
when uh tyler when you mentioned your your parents walked out that i could see that being the reason why like that's i could i mean not, it was done so to real watch. too and archer goes to the school and it's just like where's my kid how did you lose my kid like that stuff really sold it yeah not fun to watch but necessary and I, I think there was even like they asked another kid there and the kid was like i thought you picked her up even the kid was like i right. thought you had her yeah. that's that hits me hard <laughs> to be honest with you as a yep. parent i'm just like my kid's not that age yet but i mean it's just like i was i i was most at the edge of my seat on that scene yeah for sure like, again it's not as worried about what happens to dan i'm more worried about what happens to beth and to his kid my best uh, scene is when Alex poses buying the apartment. It was Tyler's best shot, but the whole scene, it's brilliant. This woman has come in and is sitting right in front of Beth in his house. She has invaded not only his work, but now his house. And she has also taken away his out. I'm moving. I'm changing my phone number. I can get out of this, which I still think is short-sighted. He still has to go into the office. Um, He's really not really out of this. She's going to find him. But in his mind, that's his out. And it's taken away from him. And I do, I, you can see the deflation in him. And you can see it's also met with the same, oh crap, this is all going to come on out right now. And Beth is very happy. The juxtaposition, like she truly has no clue. Nothing's being let on. This is when that is at its finest. Just the camera work, but shooting both of them at the same time back to his face he said i gotta go lie down i think we all need to go lie down after that scene it's intense yeah great scene tyler do you have a favorite wardrobe moment again another thing that i didn't necessarily notice but i think it stands out is at the end what alex is wearing because of what she's doing with the knife and what that to me i think is what sticks out yeah dustin best wardrobe makeup moment i have one for her and one for him for dan I really like his sort of loose denim shirt with jacket over top. A look that maybe made it through the mid-90s, but has, you know, not really a thing anymore, but a uh, very comfy look for me. For Alex, actually, I'm going to go with uh, the first time you see her in white, and she's got like a cream-colored umbrella. Like, you don't see that, like, parasol-style umbrella, like, color. You see dark umbrellas. That's what you're used to seeing. So that being kind of a, almost like a shocking mirage in the middle of this cold scene. I like the first striking wardrobe moment for our female leads. And that one was striking. And mine's going to be Glenn Close's hair. I did mention this earlier, <laughs> but I mean, uh, it personifies her. But even when you first see her in the restaurant, like I'm wild and crazy. But also, maybe... Maybe this is something you shouldn't play with. There's something dangerous about her, even right from the get-go. I choose to look like this on purpose. You think yes. I'm going to get scared? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, <laughs> Glenn Close uh, gets the, the hair there. Change one thing, Tyler. So originally I had some of the filmmaking aspects of like, I think Dustin called him out already, like get rid of some of the cop stuff. Or could we have gotten rid of actually showing Alex in the background stalking him rather than leaving it more of like is she here type thing like yeah playing with our own psyche as a as an audience but then i thought of something else which i think could be interesting i don't know if this ever was a thought i know they listed i think on imdb they had a list of a lot of the directors that they considered for this but i'm gonna go with having a female director okay all right Upsetting for Dustin, his MVP. 
Well, maybe it could have been a female director that was also like the 21st choice, you know, like, uh, and then this, and then this female director goes on to do a lot of similar other movies and, you know, it ends up working out overall. I think you need that cop stuff in there too, by the way. I think, I think that's one of the things that makes it realistic. Yeah. And actually the, on our next category, I'll get back to that. Uh, Dustin, change one thing. I wish that the crux of their conflict was less dependent on the pregnancy. I feel as if that got too much of the discussion, of the lion's share of the discussion was the pregnancy. It's a very real, let's just use homeboy speak, it's a very real scare for the guy that that's how she gets you, right? And that's not how I feel, but the idea is that's, that's part of what this is presented to our audience is that well, now you know you're really in it. It's not just about the stalker, babe. It's also the idea that, you know, you didn't wrap it up. Because of that, you have to deal with this consequence, too. And we get to the part of the discussion where it's that's like, a, hey, I'm going to... That's a great choice. I'm gonna in a movie pay... filled with a lot of bad decisions or big bad decisions, that's another yeah. bad decision. Uh, and, and, and then he says, like, don't worry. I'll, hey, I'll pay for the abortion. So like, no, I'm having the kid. Like, it, it's already scary. It's already thrilling without this added part. I, I don't feel like it must be eliminated. I just think we shift the focus away from the pregnancy. It, it's a total of a minute's worth of, of dialogue that gets changed to something else. So I just I think that would be, make it slightly better. Interesting. It's possible that it could do the big thing of just the ending, but I'm going to be a little more specific and just say the reanimation yeah. of Alex <clears throat> coming out of the water. He drowns her under the water, and then she's done. She's under the water for quite some time. He's, re- he's sitting on the floor going like, I just strangled a lady and drowned her in my bathtub. I'm going to have to live with that. And then she yep. comes back out like, you know, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and like, I was like, that is straight up Jason. Maybe walking around with no pants on and a shirt and carrying a woman to the bedroom is kind of funny and that doesn't belong in this movie. But th- I know this doesn't belong in this movie. And it's funny that he said the white contacts bothered me. Same scene, like every move there bothered me and i i guess they paid him 1.5 million dollars to feel better about it which would help me feel better about it but uh, um it's frustrating i think i think the other ending was the way to go on this one and it's most evident with that cheap thing i said you had to look past something else somewhere else i think you also have to look past that too there's something you need to get over with early with them falling into this situation too easily we know we want a happy ending or whatever but that last little thing to us that that's not good don't do that well and I, I think you said this earlier too you can still have the moment where beth is the one who kills alex you like that that is still yeah, an effective that. moment of come that in and just have her come in and shoot him like 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 you know dan's can't even get his umbrella up I, like he can't kill her she's too cool beth's got to come in there and shoot him for him i mean like i mean i like that better I still don't know if the movie's happy at the end. It is over, but I think that there was a real purpose to the zoom in on the frame of the the happy family and kind of like freeze frame as the credits go over it. I I think that they're... I I don't know that that ending is necessarily happy. Oh, Oh, you're thinking it's like The Graduate where they they let the camera roll just about 10 seconds longer than normal movies where they kind of like, they're smiling, they're smiling, they're smiling, and then they kind of look down like, what have we done? Where are we now? Well, what, yeah, it, it, it's, that's, a, that's a good like, mention is that like, uh, we don't really know if it's a happy ending. And, and we also, we didn't think it was an unhappy beginning. 
Like it was fine. Yeah, very Things true. were fine. And then mistake. Yeah. Great point. Now best quote, Tyler. I'll edit this down for the audience, but it's a quote between Alex and Dan where basically she's please don't justify yourself, it's pathetic. If you tell me to F off, I'd have more respect for you. And then he goes, All right, F off. <laughs> yeah. And it and it's kind of played as like a bantery moment, but also I think it perfectly encapsulates why we're there in the first place and why everything kind of happens. Dan had one card up his sleeve that he didn't try after that, because, I mean, that's pretty subtle. Make yourself undesirable. Like, come in, like, belching and, like, you know, like, you know, like it's like, you haven't showered. You smell terrible. It's like, it's how I roll. <laughs> that's true. He did not try I don't that shower on the weekends. <laughs> My braces makes me shower enough during the week. <laughs> And I leave the bathroom door like... open. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I, I gotta say, like, what, what that particular quote does is it shows us the audience, and it, it, it shows us that she knows the rules. She knows how, like, the cool affair that we both had some fun and could be over. Like, she knows how it is supposed to go. Just let this be over. And deliberately chooses not to. She knows that she is playing a game with the different rules. I, I, I just think it's, it's manipulative and effective and good. Good choice. Dustin, best quote. This is actually from that sheriff dude, Paselli. He's speaking in pronouns as if like it's not his issue, right? Dan is talking about like, say I have this friend that has like a situation going on. And Paselli's response is I think what we actually started the maybe plot discussion section of the podcast with, which was, it's his bed. I'm afraid he's going to have to lie in it. Yeah. It kind of summed up to what I thought I got from the both of you earlier, which was like, yeah, he did this kind of like, we're not ever really on his side. We don't feel redemptive towards him. He's not easy to be empathic with or sympathetic to. It, it was like, he messed up. He's paying for it. And that's what the sheriff dude says to him. Yeah. This movie doesn't work either if they don't threaten his wife and child. Like, that's, that's what was so smart about it. Like, to your point, Dustin, I'm not sure how much I ever really, 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 really came around to, like, I'm really worried for Dan Gallagher. But they, may, they extended the threat. Right. That, what you just said, where I don't know how much I actually care about him, weirdly plays into how this movie plays differently now. Like, it, it, it perfectly fits into why this movie is such a good discussion point not just as a capsule of the 80s, but looking at it today as well. Very true. I thought this was just a little foreshadowing moment. He plays dead, which is a horrible, dumb, like, like fakes a heart attack. I mean, he's not... In the park. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, maybe that would have been his other way out. Like, weekend at Bernie's your way out of this. Um, <laughs> it's like, have his friend be like, yep, he's real dead. <laughs> What'd he die of? Dead Atias? But But even... Like, Kills a hundred times. <laughs> but even then, like, j just her response to, like, my dad died of, a, died of a heart attack and, like, that whole thing. And then she, like, laughs and is like, was that true? He's, she's like, oh, could be. That's bad. And that's where this line comes in, Tyler. He says, she says, or he then goes, well, you certainly got me, didn't you? Um, which is, again, out of context, but another smart foreshadowing line. There's a little, there's a lot of those little things. That line doesn't mean that, but it means something else in the greater picture of things, and it has weight 
far beyond this. You go through it, you'll find those. And I, I like those moments where it's more profound later. That's good screenplay writing. That's good dialogue. So, um, Tyler, we want to thank you for coming on the show. And tell us one more time where we can find your movie reviews on After the Credits. It's afterthecreditsblog.com. Trying to stay up to date and keep the reviews coming. Awesome. Save people the trouble for looking up your review for Fatal Attraction on a five-star scale, half-star rating. What would you rate Fatal Attraction from 1987? I've been going back and forth. I, I know it's at least four out of the five. I know it's at least four. The discussion part of this of this podcast really can make your your rating fluctuate, like what you went in to the recording with and what you end up with all the time. It's at least a four. It might go up to four and a half. I think it's very, very effective, very smart. It knows what it's doing. I'll go with four for now, but know that that could very easily be a four and a half, depending on my mood. <laughs> uh, Dustin, I'm going to hold you feet to the fire. Five star scale. What's it going to be? I'm going to land at 4.5. Four and a half stars here. There were the things we mentioned in the show. Very easily gets into this affair when seemingly everything else is good. The ending that kind of turns psycho thriller. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Fa 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 fa. It, it definitely seems like not incomplete, but of the things that it excelled at, there were places where you could see that improvement existed. Uh, but I, I just, I, I absolutely adored the movie, and I, I may even, I still got some time on my rental. I might even watch it again after the podcast. Four and a half for me. Very, very impactful, good movie. I'm pulled here, and I'm going to give this a four. And I think, I think the, I think the better ending probably could have gotten this all the way up to a five. That's a big swing. But I mean, the ending and the easy, like the ease of which they fall into this, we have, we have nitpicked, I think, throughout this a little bit, but. I think that those are the things that just almost go there because it's so well directed, so well acted, and everything that it does do well. Certainly, I mean, we actually pull out some big flaws in this, and like those sound like you're on road for like a three star rating, but it's because it's done so well in every other regard, which is why Tyler's probably teeter tottering in that four four point five. I myself, not not kidding, wrote four point five down, but the more I thought about it, and particularly that end. That ending is what kind of like made me kind of go like, nah, I like this other ending a lot. We had it taken away from us. So I wish the studios had kept their $1.5 million. I think it's very possible Glenn Close is more considered for her Oscar at that point. I would agree. This, this would be home run with that original ending. Home run. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, for joining us. We had a lot of Thanks fun. Thanks for having me. It's always good to, to stop in and chat movies. Dustin, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I'm ready. All right. Our Oscar season will continue, and we have three options here. A River Runs Through It from 1992. Two sons, a stern minister, one reserved, one rebellious, grow up in a rural 1920s Montana while devoting themselves to fly fishing. Uh, Option two, Revolutionary Road from 2008. A young couple living in Connecticut suburbs during the 1950s struggled to come to terms with their personal problems while trying to raise two children. And option three, Almost famous from 2000. A high school boy in the early 70s is given a chance to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine about an up-and-coming rock band that he accompanies with them on a concert tour. So three Oscar-nominated movies. Going with almost famous, option three. Not quite famous. Not quite. Not quite. The name of the tour 
Thank you guys so much. And thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out, subscribe to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Uh, thank you so much for producing and providing this podcast. It's fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable you can pay us 1.5 million dollars and we will make the show into anything that you want even so, retro book roundtable that, that oh it could happen it could right under my feet as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies dustin is it you my great and worthy opponent but it can't be not this pitiful spineless pasty bloated codfish i see before me you're not even a shadow of peter pan